3: From Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Awards Circuit Podcast.
4: I could never imagine myself anywhere but a stage. And if there is a secret, it's that in between what have been extraordinary highlights in my career, I have learned how to wait. A lot of actors get terrified and scared, and they take crap to, to keep working. They take terrible TV series or third-rate movies. I wish I'd said yes a bit more, but I pay too high a price for it. And I've been lucky enough to every twice a decade have something that clicked, so I keep getting asked. I would say that I my ability to wait is probably what's responsible for my longevity.
3: Frank Langella has enjoyed a career that spans decades on both stage and screen. I'm Janelle Riley. On this edition of Awards Circuit, we talk to Frank Langella about his latest gig as Judge Julius Hoffman in Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago Seven. He reveals how Sorkin won him over for the film and other tidbits from his lengthy career, including why Skeletor in Masters of the Universe is still one of his favorite roles. Also in this episode, Chape Dirisu and Wumi Mosaku discuss their new Netflix film, His House. But first, our awards roundtable tackles the hot topics of the week. It's all on Variety Awards Circuit podcast. Stay close.
5: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Variety Awards Circuit. I'm Clayton Davis, the Film Awards editor here, joined today with Janelle Riley. Hello. And Jazz Tanke. Hi. And his majesty himself, Michael Schneider.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> someone's playing favorites. <laughs> <laughs> Greetings and salutations,
2: everyone. So uh, as we record this, uh, Borat 2 is finally out. Uh, it's seen the light of day. And, you know, there, before it was released, uh, all the conversation was about that Giuliani clip. But now that we've actually seen it, uh, it's it's uh, the attention has turned to the breakout star of this film, Maria Bakalova uh she's a sensation she sort of came out of nowhere right uh, and and is really what everyone's talking about who's at least seen this film uh. first of
3: all i want to say it was not a tuck um <laughs> <laughs> and secondly i want to say she is fantastic she is the the breakout of the year to be able to hold your own with sasha baron cohen and also deliver this really sweet performance and journey that that her character has a really amazing arc and then just also the the thing she do i i said it on twitter but like forget the oscars give her a Nobel prize i love <laughs> that
1: i have to agree that absolutely was not a tuck i do not know any male or female who will lie down on a bed to tuck a shirt and no. sorry if you do that um <laughs> she is amazing she is you cannot forget her performance like there are so many moments that just stand out and she is incredible I mean I wasn't following her on Instagram until I saw Janelle post about her and tag her and I was like going through and thinking she is definitely a contender for Golden Globe and you know supporting actress which we're going to talk about but I mm. stand out
5: as a chubby person I have tucked in my shirt that way I would just never do it in front of someone else so that, that on a was hotel not a t- room bed. On a hotel room bed. Right, right. So, in front of a 15-year-old. I, listen, yeah. I feel the struggle as a chubby person, but Rudy, come on now. Like, that's something different. Uh, well, as a
3: chubby person, I don't tuck. <laughs>
5: I wear it <laughs> outside. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, you slow. That is true. But you did tuck I just it don't. in front of a
1: 15-year-old, though, Clayton. That's no. the, That's.
5: The I don't thing. even tuck it in front of my wife, like, typically. <laughs> I feel like she's going to make fun of me. So that there's, like, that. So that aside... Uh, yeah, she's a great breakout sensation, uh, supporting actress is a category this year that has enough fluidity for a performance like hers to get in. And I believe she will be in the conversation, uh, depending on how well the film overall does, does overall with the Academy. And, uh, for historical context, the first one, uh, 2006 got nominated for adapted screenplay and I will believe to this day, Sasha Baron Cohen was number six in that best actor race he just missed in the end. So I think we will have a, a similar situation and maybe she will become the representation for the film that's going to garner a lot of talk around not water coolers, because no one's at a cooler, but around Zoom windows. Zoom meetings,
2: oh, yes. Zoom meetings. I, I guess one one big question for me is is the impact and, and the legacy of, of Borat 2. You know, the election is happening in the next uh, you know week or so, fingers crossed, mm. that we're all around here in a month or two. But will people still be talking about Borat 2 at that point, or will it sort of feel like everyone's ready to move on and just sort of, sort of, you know, that's, that's what, what, what is sort of the, the, the legacy going to be the, the, the lasting impact of this film?
5: Yeah, for sure. Uh, Yeah. I I think you bring up a very uh, solid point. And I think more so than anything, uh, and this is with a lot of films this year, the election is going to dictate how the Academy responds to a lot of films and what kind of mood we're going to be in. Uh, If the, if a particular outcome that is positive comes out on November 3rd, Uh, And we're all like in a happy mood that we can laugh about this still in April, then sure, if the wrong outcome happens, and we're all like the world's burning down, something like Borat's not going to be funny still, because we're going to be worrying about other types of things. And I think a lot of films are going to um, hedge their bets on what happens at at that particular time. But, you know, it's five, almost six months left to go. You know, it's got to sustain a while.
3: You mean in in Oscars, not in election? <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. I mean that <laughs> okay. too. It feels
5: it feels like five or six months to go with.
3: Yeah. Oh my god.
5: Yeah. 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 You know.
3: What are you looking for my opinions? Yeah, i I'm, you're, I'm, you're, I'm you sitting have here better team. wisdom than I do. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know about that. I before we we jumped on this, I said that I'm feeling like a little shell shocked, and I think it, a lot of it might be pre-election jitters frankly. And uh, I'm so impressed that Borat was actually able to make me laugh about these things and make me laugh. Um, There's a scene with Mike Pence and this whole idea that Michael Pence is a ladies man and and Borat, you know, has to gift her, gift him his daughter. Like, I'm really impressed that I was able to find humor in these situations.
5: I also, can I just say also, Jenna, I think you, I think I saw you say something on Twitter. Maybe you just said it to me in private. that this didn't leak before beforehand. Oh my God. It's
3: shocking. Yeah, no, I can't believe that like, we we all got wind of the um, concert he gave as Country Steve. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was a little bit, if you searched for it, you could find some of the Giuliani stuff that he called the cops, but the Michael Pence stuff, where he brought his daughter in and and people saw that and he was dressed as Trump. Like I I am impressed. Like the only people who keep secrets as well, honestly, are like the people on The Bachelor. Other than that, <laughs> like yeah. things things leak all the time, and I know it was really hard for people not to discuss the spoilers when the movie was previewed for for press and critics, and it became a real talking point. Like, no, this is news; we we should be able to talk about this now. And I yeah. I have mixed feelings about that. Like, I was trying to be as spoiler free as possible. You know, I'm, I'm,
5: gl- I'm glad. I think you. I think anyone who got, and now everyone knows. Yeah. So only we were part of that first wave that was able to watch it without any context. So when it for me, I had no idea that it was coming, and then when it came, I was like, hmm like I, I couldn't breathe. Like I, like it was really uh, it, was, it was something. And
2: it's, it's astounding that he's still able to pull that off, given just you know yeah. his shows and the past films, and and you know his team. Credit to them. I mean, they their precision in pulling this off. Uh, it is clinical. It is surgical yeah. at this point on how they manage to still do this in this day and age, given how cynical people are and how, you know, savvy they should be, but clearly mm-hmm. are not.
5: Yeah. Um, my, my wife, Jessica, like when when we started watching, it, she was watching it with me and she was like, there's no way this is real anymore. Like everyone knows who Borat is. I was like, but it, it's different. And then obviously if you see yeah. the movie unfold, you're like, yeah, it's not, it's Borat, but it's not Borat. So you can get away with it. Like, right. and, and it's also, this is gonna sound very Hollywood elitist, but it's also the places that he chooses to do these things mm-hmm. that gets mm-hmm. him a lot of mileage. You can't do what he does in New York City and LA. And he
3: only sets them up so much. Like he gives you know, people this rope and then they really sort of hang themselves. It's, he, he, he doesn't
1: egg them on too much. That's the scary part. I was gonna say the scene with the when he's with the QAnon like guys. I mean, like you said, he gave them rope and they hung themselves. It was
3: conspiracy theory.
1: It's <laughs> probably my favorite. <laughs> on <laughs> yeah. people say that. Uh, but
5: but back in the awards context, just real quick, there's precedent for like a performance such as this, and I think the the most uh, apt uh, comparison would be Melissa McCarthy and Bridesmaids, like. Mm-hmm. this is kind of what what happens in, in that type of uh in a film because it's funny this week I have a column talking about the comedy contenders in a film in a year that's been so filled with uh tears and sadness mm-hmm. and stuff comedy has the power to bring some things into a better spot And a performance such as hers getting nominated could totally happen
1: and so many people reacted really well to this film like as soon as it dropped on Thursday and Friday. Like if you watch film Twitter, usually they're so negative and everybody <laughs> kind of was on the same, like what Janelle was saying. Like they really enjoyed laughing. And I think so many people talking about the supporting actress.
2: Again, someone who we've never heard of. I mean, had any of you heard of Maria Buckle? I mean, looking at her IMDB <laughs> credits, she's kind of, kind of comes out of nowhere and to be in the conversation, pretty amazing. Uh, break down that category for, for us. What, what, who's, who's, who's in there and, and who does she uh, face off with in, in terms of trying to land a spot?
3: Well, yeah. first of all, I'm not convinced she's real. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> i an was, <I> was, <laughs> elaborate like
5: hoax. Jan- <laughs> Janelle 100% is on conspiracy theory and not for nothing. Like totally yeah. warranted. Like, we, like It's too perfect of like, and who is she and why is she here? You know, it's it's very yeah. it's very strange. And
2: maybe I, sa maybe maybe Sasha is actually like cloning, like he's he's actually building these people for like uh, apparently she was born in nineteen ninety-six, which is you know, mm-hmm. Sasha's old enough that maybe he has a farm and he's like constructing I the love perfect it. cast.
5: I, I saw I saw this conspiracy this. I, saw, I saw this conspiracy theory on Twitter that it's really uh uh Isla Fisher, like in oh, like, heavy makeup. Oh, and I yeah. was like and then it, like, usually I'd be like, oh, you're so stupid. But I was like, maybe, <laughs> like, right. why not? Sure.
3: Well, um, it, yeah, I think it's interesting because yeah. I think this is going to be another one of these races of newcomers versus veterans because yeah. in addition to Maria, I'm looking at um, Helena Zengel, mm-hmm. um, I think is how her name is I'm, it's pronounced, forgive me if I'm getting that wrong, who's acting opposite Tom Hanks in News of the World. And then you have greats like Olivia Coleman and Glenn Close, like, I think it's going to be a really interesting uh, dichotomy there
5: yeah, yeah. And, I, and and this is uh once in a while, the race is good to newcomers uh, and when I say newcomers, I'm using that term very loosely here because uh, obviously Maria is actually one, but uh forgive me if I'm saying her name wrong, Yu Zhang Zhong for Ma oh. as mm-hmm. her grandmother. Um, I think it's going to be in the conversation quite quite a bit. And um, I now, hope so. I yeah. still
3: have um, PTSD from grandmother and the farewell. Yeah. Never get over it.
5: Yeah. And listen, and, and I think I just spoke about it recently as well. Asian representation in the academy is the worst of, of them all. And, you know, hopefully they can respond to Minari with a nice, good, you know, uh, batch mm-hmm. of, of nominations. And then there's going to be other factors. I mean, it is also a place for the OGs, like you mentioned, Glenn Close, Ellen Burstyn's going to be in it uh, in the conversation. I think for a nod, and then uh, Sierra Bravo for Cherry if she ends up going supporting, because uh, that's one that could uh, see either either side of it.
2: Indeed. Yeah. Um, talk about R.I.P. Quibi. Oh, it, Quibi.
1: Am I the only person who actually no. watched Quibi shows?
2: You, you, I think so, Janelle. I, <laughs> watched <Yeah. Free> Ra-
1: <laughs> I watched Free Ration and, and a bit of Chrissy thing. I, That's I
2: watched, it. <laughs> yeah, I watched a bunch, but again, for the job. And, and clearly, most of America d- did not. Uh, did you see the final numbers? So, so, you know, the goal is they hope by the end of the year they would get 7 million paying subscribers. You know how many they ended up with? Two. 70,
1: 72,000. Oh,
2: I'm, I'm wow. shocked it's that much. Yeah, that that's that's almost a clerical error. You,
5: you know, yeah, it's got it's got to be, and that's got to be all the like employees and their and their families. Members. Yeah. Um, can I? I don't like kicking people when they're down. So obviously, yeah. it's already it's already dead. But right, right. What what a botched rollout of of anything that we've ever seen in a modern era of something like that on paper should work so well. Well, gist.
2: that's where I disagree. On paper, mm. this was a bad idea as well. Mm. It really? Was the, you think so? Yeah, it was the solution in search of a problem. Uh, you know, when, when you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman came to our variety offices last year, and even then, a lot of the questions that we were asking, they, they, they didn't really have strong answers. You know, why would people pay for this content when they already get YouTube content for free, when they already get news content for free? When, uh, you know... When when people do have a spare moment on their phone, they're not lacking in content. So you know maybe if Quibi were a free product, that's one thing. But even then, you still have to uh, train them to actually use it. Now add on a price point, there just there wasn't a need, there wasn't a demand. Throw the pandemic on top of it, and game over. But
5: a a lot of it was cart before the horse too. Like you know then once they launched it, then they were like oh. And here's some uh original content we're gonna do in addition to by that point it was like wait what who are you and what what are you trying to give me listen like i love how they really try to like lure people in with singled out remember mtv remember jenny mccarthy right like, we're gonna do singled out and then we were like what with kiki palmer That doesn't make sense so, yeah it, it was
3: it i was, didn't even know this show existed this is how out of it that, i am that's how i, I
5: heard of it oh
2: they i mean, it the trailer. I they had some it, interesting content i mean jazz like you mentioned free, free ray and they had this show murder house which was uh you know about renovating murder homes which is a great idea uh they had a reno 911 reboot they had some good content it's just you know this this business model it was jeffrey kansenberg the hubris of him saying you know what uh look at the kids they're they're on their phones so hey i should uh make content for them and and all the Gen Zers are gonna show up. Uh, it, it was like the, the classic, uh, you know, how do you do fellow kids moment where Katzenberg <laughs> thought he knew yeah. what the kids wanted Which because, you know hey, well. they're on the
3: phones. Yeah, yes. that, was your, that was your Halloween costume last year. That was year. my Halloween costume last year, so <laughs> <Yeah>. I- <laughs>
0: yeah, With Yeah,
5: I, 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 I imagine him being like Amy Polar and Mean Girls. I'm not like a regular mom, I'm a cool mom, you know? Like, <laughs> I, I know what the kids are liking these days. You know, it's almost like they should have, le- like he almost should have leaned into being like, all right, I'm going to be like a little mini Nickelodeon. Like that might have been a better avenue to go down rather than just whatever. Yeah, yeah. I
3: I, I feel bad because he gave a lot of good creative people carte blanche, it seems. And I support yeah. that. And I think that that, yeah is a great idea i so there's a part of me like I'm, I'm never happy when things like this shut down and people lose their jobs yeah.
2: no no a lot of really yeah. smart great people lost their jobs and that's the unfortunate thing is that maybe there was a world where they could have figured out the right way to do this maybe you make it free you have a more like very specific content strategy uh you know there there, there were ways to do this but from the start i think katzenberg and, and whitman got Ca- like caught up in their own idea they were in love with their idea mm. and you know the fact that you couldn't watch it on roku or on apple tv mm-hmm. the, the the fact yeah. that there wasn't a free option uh you know the fact that they didn't own any of that content which meant that they were really exposed when this thing collapsed because they didn't have any assets yeah. uh, you know the only thing they had was that technology where you could watch you know vertical or horizontal which was and, great, the, and, the, and the
5: big thing was publicity they didn't bring on publicity until after like the launch. Like, mm-hmm. like, yeah. like there was just like no one that knew and Yeah, anything. Like no one, no one, like even if in regular conversation, like I know we all surround ourselves with like regular people who don't know our industry well. Say Quibi to someone, they're like, what is, like what? What's Quibi? Like no one knows. Yeah. Like it collapsed and people still don't know what it is. Yeah. Like, and that could, and that's a story. Like Quibi collapsed and people will be like, oh, like they don't, like we can't even bring <laughs> the buzz to, to, to its downfall so the
1: yeah. the publicity thing was crazy given the celebrity roster like every they had so many people and then the i don't know they just didn't do a great job with that publicity oh. and marketing at all but then they ended up winning what two emmys at the end of it all for yeah. free racial and they got 10 what, i think 10 emmy nominations yeah
2: 10 nominations so not bad they yeah. did okay which honestly they could have they could have done more to tell you the truth because mm-hmm. no one else is doing that kind of short form they should have yeah. dominated all the short form categories totally. and, and that that brings up a good point about the publicity is and, and this still like I was bugging them a year before launch. What's your award strategy? What are you doing? And and they were like, we we, we don't have one now. We're focused on launch. They they had nothing to say. And you know, really up until after launch did they finally even have a strategy that they mentioned. And and by then it was too late. And That's unfortunate as well because, you know, short form is an interesting category, which unfortunately is still dominated mostly by marketing, you know, the spinoff of, uh, you know, Better Call Saul or, uh, you know, behind the scenes at Drag Race. Fine, but that's not original content. Uh, You know, short form, those categories still need an infusion of originality. Quibi gave a little bit of that. There was promise of maybe more, but now there won't be. And so they, these they, categories are...
5: double dutched into the Oscar race and just dominate the shorts there. Like they could have mm-hmm. just been a leader on shorts. Period. Yeah.
2: Or, you know, the other thing, and I, I gave them this idea. They didn't take it, which is, yeah, I know you're about the shorts, but premiere for a week, the a movie, mm-hmm. like you just throw it up there. So you get eligibility and then cut it up and then yeah. deliver it as, as shorts. Sure. But If you initially delivered it as a full movie, then you could enter the TV movie category at the Emmys. You could go for Oscars. You could broaden your horizon beyond just being the shorts play. But again, they were so short-sighted. Pun intended. Ah,
3: (laughs) This is what happens when you don't listen to Michael Schneider.
2: Yeah, (laughs) And I think we're going to leave it there. Pouring a 40 out for Quibi. Thanks, everyone. 40? Maybe it should be 10 because it's short.
3: <laughs> yeah. I love me some. Exactly. Pour it out a
5: 10 ounce for Quibi. That's more like oh, it. I'll, I'll, Thank I'll, you, Janelle. I like, like Mike. Mike Mike. Mike could have grew, grew up with me in the Bronx. He knows, he knows about 40s.
1: That's why he got the royal introduction. There you there go. You yeah, know, now we, go. Know. we know why he's the favorite. da
3: da It's Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, I'm Janelle Riley. Frank Langella has won four Tony Awards, portrayed everyone from Richard Nixon to Dracula, and starred in beloved hits from Dave to his recent turn on TV's The Americans. And yet, many people want to talk to him about his work in the 1987 children's fantasy flick Masters of the Universe, where he portrayed the faceless villain Skeletor. And Langella doesn't mind one bit. The 82-year-old veteran of stage and screen talks about his new role as Judge Julius Hoffman in Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7.
4: My trial's begun without my lawyer. The court assumes you are being represented by the Black Panther sitting behind you. The riots were started by the Chicago Police Department. Sustained. Nobody objected. Jurors six and 11, they're with us. Juror number six and juror number 11, you're dismissed from this jury. Can you tell us why? Because this is my courtroom.
2: We've dealt with jury tampering, wiretapping, a defendant that was literally gagged. Get your hands off me.
4: You're the first to suggest that I have discriminated
2: against a black man. Then let the record show that I'm the second.
3: Langella doesn't mince words about playing Judge Hoffman, who presided over the trial of seven defendants accused of actions related to the rioting outside the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. While many actors might say they have to find humanity in the person they're portraying, Langella says he didn't feel the need with this film. I recently spoke with Langella about the trial of the Chicago 7, as well as the secret to his career longevity. We began by talking about the moment he realized as a young boy in New Jersey that he wanted to be an actor.
4: Yes, I was seven and I um, was a hopelessly shy, huge horn-rimmed glasses, uh, spiky hair kid. And the school uh, teacher came in and said, does anyone want to go downstairs an audition for the operetta we're doing called lazy town in which my sister had the lead and my hand went up and I went down it was the first time I'd ever seen a stage or a backstage and I knew the moment I stepped on it I'm one of the lucky young men in the world because I knew from seven that there was something I was called to do I don't mean that in a highfalutin way. It just took away that awful moment when you graduate college and go, what do I do now? I knew from seven on. So that that's one thing that was spared me, that
6: decision.
3: And um, it looks like you started out pretty quickly in theater, um, and it's something you've always made a point to return to. Um, is that your first love? What What do you like about the medium of theater?
4: Well, it's changed, actually. I never... I never dreamed I'd be in movies. It never occurred to me. I thought I was meant to be on the stage and I didn't really make a movie till I was about, I can't remember how old I was, it was 1969. So I was in my late thirties when I made my first movie. I always wanted to be a theater actor and I still do, but now I love being in front of a camera and I love the intimacy and the things you can put across in the small voice and the moment and the raise of the eyebrow. And when I was younger, I was extremely theatrical. Of course, you couldn't tell that from a judge, could you? And um, (laughs) I just loved being on stage. And I still do, but I like working in front of films now. It's easier on your body. Uh,
3: When was the last time you were on stage? Was it the father?
4: Yes. My uh, 2016, it goes by very quickly.
3: Wow. No, as I mentioned to you before we started, I was able to see that um, performance and it was astounding. You won your fourth Tony for it. Um, Let me see if I can get this correctly. Your other Tonys were for Seascape, Fortune's Fool, and Frost Nixon.
4: Very good. Thank you. (laughs) Seascape was my Broadway debut.
3: You won a Tony for your Broadway debut?
4: Yeah, I did. Edward Albee play. The play was not successful. It only ran, I think, two or three months in New York, and then we took it to L.A., and then it closed.
3: Really? That's so interesting. You, t- you went from Broadway to L.A.? Because usually I, I, I've i known of it being the other way around.
4: No. Um, the fact of the matter is good producers figure out how to not make it look like the play is a flop so they announce that they're going to take it elsewhere and that's what they did Smart. and we took, we took it for four or five weeks to the Schubert Theater in LA which no longer exists. A great deal of what I was involved with and who I was involved with no longer exists you know yeah, it's what? a 60-year career so uh, when I look now at uh Cast lists and old movies and old plays, the vast majority of those people are gone.
3: I mean, uh, is it because they passed or is it some people leave the business?
4: No, they died. Uh, A few left, but last night I saw something, I can't remember what it was, and I counted every single person involved in the project is dead but me.
3: Wow. 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 You know, you mentioned before that it was sort of later in your career that you got into movies, but right out of the gate, your first two movies were Diary of a Mad Housewife and The Twelve Chairs, both brilliant yeah. films. They couldn't be more different. <laughs> uh, what finally got you into the movies?
4: Um, an offhanded remark from Mel Brooks. He was preparing a movie called The Twelve Chairs, in which he, was, in which he had cast... Peter Sellers, um, Albert Finney, and a wonderful character actor whose name escapes me right now for the leading role. That actor fell out. When he fell out, Peter Sellers left. When Peter Sellers fell out, Albert Finney left. So Mel, Alistair Sim was the name of that man. And uh, so Mel didn't have a company. I was a friend. And I said, why don't you go see a movie called Oliver, starring uh, the man in Oliver, Ron Moody. And I took Mel to the movie, and he said, that's my lead. And then he started going down the names of actors to play the young juvenile lead in the movie. And nobody seemed right to him. And one day he just said, oh, fuck it, you do it. That's how I got my first movie. And then he added Dom DeLuise to the cast. So it was nine months in Yugoslavia. It was an incredibly great experience.
3: So you didn't even have to audition for your first movie.
4: No, I didn't because he had seen me for a year playing opposite his wife, Anne Bancroft, in a play about young Will Shakespeare. So Wow,
1: that's
3: um, fantastic. Uh, when was the last time you did audition, just out of curiosity? Are are those days long gone? I, I have to imagine you have this body of work you can point to. I
4: haven't. I'm just trying to think. No, I really haven't auditioned for anything since Dave, the Ivan Reitman movie. And that was about I spent, uh, 12 or 14 years ago. And I, uh, I haven't auditioned much because um, most of the time I will get a job because someone is seen me and uh, and I'm I, I but I was a great audition for that movie because I really wanted the part and I memorized it and all that stuff but mm-hmm. most of the time now you either like my flavor or you don't
3: <laughs> uh, I'm just so happy you invoked Dave because it's one of my all-time favorite movies and um, it's actually been coming up a lot lately I, I guess that kind of happens in election years people aspire to uh, to what Dave presented oh, yeah.
4: That hadn't occurred to me, but I'm sure Dave would be a wonderful movie to watch related to the current atmosphere.
3: Yeah, and and also just a great movie to watch any day. It's it's so fantastic. Um, yeah. Since your film debut, you've juggled film, stage, television, all equally. Um, and so has Aaron Sorkin, your writer-director of The Trial of the Chicago 7. This feels like such a perfect match. I'm almost surprised you haven't worked together before. Um, how did Aaron reach out to you about the role of Judge Hoffman or, you know, did it just come through the normal channels?
4: He called my agent and made an offer, which surprised me because I would have thought he would have already had someone in that role and asked if I would come meet him for a drink. I went to meet him for a drink and he started the conversation by saying, when I was seven years old, I fell in love with you as Dracula. And uh, you tell that to an actor and he's yours for life. And uh, we had a wonderful couple of hour conversation about Judge Hoffman and what I thought I could do with it. And um, that was the beginning. It was really very simple. People tell you these horror stories of, I auditioned four times, I went back. I was, That's not happened to me. So I was. Uh, I feel very lucky to have been offered this role.
3: Just because um, both Aaron Sorkin and I uh, invoked Dracula, I'm sort of curious. um, When people see you, is there a specific role they want to talk about? Is it Dracula? Is it Dave? Is it Skeletor?
4: Um, A lot of people talk to me about Skeletor, which is one of my favorite parts. And they always say, did you feel like you were slumming? And I say, absolutely not. My son was four years old and I wanted him to see his father a Skeletor. And I loved playing it, and I rewrote I re- it entirely uh, with the, with the uh, agreement of the director. And uh, it's really one of my favorite parts still. And my son, who was four years old, fell asleep at the screening. So he, he never saw it.
3: <laughs> to this day, he hasn't seen it?
4: I don't think so, no. He's now 38 or 39 years old, so I don't think he's ever seen it.
3: Oh my gosh! That be—I think that would be so cool if my dad was Skeletor and Dracula.
4: Yeah, they asked me—they asked me about Dracula, but that's less and less, and uh, a lot about Dave. And uh, I think now the most uh, current I get asked about is the Americans, is that series, which I also enjoyed doing very much.
3: That was going to be my other guess. Again, just another great character. Um, When you signed on for a trial of the Chicago Seven, what did you know about the real-life Chicago Seven, if anything?
4: Well, uh, I was thirty when the Chicago Seven was going on, and I was totally apolitical, disinterested in anything but uh, learning lines and and chasing girls. Um, So I was in no way politically or in any other way involved with it, I read everything I can get and then I throw it all away. I just, I read it for some glimmer of the person and then after all it's an art form. So I toss out everything knowing that the research is in my head and I can pull on it and I let my imagination take me where I want to go.
3: You've played a number of real-life people, but I'm I'm trying to think, have you ever actually been able to meet any of them, or would you want to even?
4: Well, everybody I played was dead at the time I played them. The judge in this movie, uh, Richard, I can't remember his name, who was the uh, Uncle Dick to LBJ, and uh, Richard Nixon, they were all gone. I don't think I've ever played anybody who was alive at the time.
3: I mean, given the opportunity, do you think you would want to sit down and talk to like Warren Berger or William S. Paley or any of those people you've played? Or would that get uh, in your head too much?
4: Oh, I forgot about both Paley and Berger. You're very good. <laughs> um, I, it would all depend uh, on um, what that person was and what I would like to be as that person. Um, and if I thought it would be beneficial to me to meet them, I would, but if I thought that their oeuvre or their point of view about themselves was very strong and they would say, now you have to do this and you have to do that, I, I wouldn't go near them.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, Judge Hoffman, I'm, I'm trying to find a, a nice way to say this, uh, he can be really monstrous. I guess that wasn't nice, sorry. <laughs> but I also know.
4: He's a son of a bitch.
3: Thank you, thank you. Um, But I also hear a lot that actors don't like to think of their character as villains. Um, I don't know, like, how did you feel about him and how were you able to justify some of his actions, you know, being that character? And I say character even though he's real.
4: (laughs) Actors will tell you all the time, when you're playing someone who is considered a villain, you have to believe in your guy totally. And therefore... You search around for a moment here or there to give him some little bit of inner life so the audience will uh, see. When I did Nixon, I tried very hard, even though I disagreed with the man, to find a way to give him humanity. In this role, I found no such desire. He was, with all of my research, um, an absolute bigoted, uh, corrupt in the hands of politicians, determined man to convict them all. He had no gray area on the bench. Had he been a character you saw in life, you know, going home to his wife and doing other things, I might have found something. But I, I didn't for a moment ever believe I should comment on this man in terms of, oh, I'm really a nice guy, because he wasn't. And I also feel that it was my obligation to Aaron and my colleagues to play him as corrupt and mean and unavailable as possible so that they would hate me and, uh, and have great reason to fight me. I haven't seen the film, but I'm told those scenes are very um, powerful because Julius Hoffman was a horrible guy. So the other actors would have good reason to dislike him.
3: Uh, they're horrible and they're upsetting and they feel in a weird way all too timely.
4: Yeah, very.
3: Um, you mentioned um, some of your co-stars and this movie has the most amazing ensemble. I mean, you're working with Sasha Baron Cohen and Jeremy Strong. Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, um, at the same time, you're their adversary. Did you, did you get to you know, interact with them much or were you sort of on your side of the bench?
4: I asked uh, um, Aaron on the first day we met over that drink, if I could stay private, if, if he would keep me away from the company. Because I, I said, look, I really don't want them to know me personally. I'd rather they see me come on for the first time and deal with me as the judge. And uh, he looked at me like that was a little crazy. After all, we're actors, but um, he agreed. But the very first day of shooting, the cameras were all facing them. And he came and said, look, if I have to break it all down and give you a big entrance the first time so they can meet you, it's gonna take a couple of hours. And I said, do what's best for the movie. And he said, thank you. So I sat off camera for a full 12 or 14 hours feeding them their lines. I didn't say hello to them. They didn't say hello to me. And I was a little figure at the side of the camera. And when the day was almost done, without even thinking about it, I got up, I walked down, and the first person I tapped on the shoulder was Sasha. And he turned and looked at me with shock. And I said, I know I told everybody, I didn't want to meet any of you, but you're all so good that I will miss three weeks of knowing you and stuff. And I went down the line, hugged and kissed everybody and told them how great they were. And it was for me, uh, one of the greatest experiences of my working life because had I gone off in a corner, Had I remained, not gone up and get a sandwich where they go, had had I been aloof or distant, um, I would have missed what was was equally important to me was the interrelationships I had with all of them. And I did, you know, when you're a judge and when you're as old as I am, and I'm older than everybody, um, there tends to be a lovely sense of respect and honor that they give you. And when you open yourself up to them and you're vulnerable to them, it adds so much more to the experience. I would have missed a lot had I hung on to them. It was a happy set. It was a, I don't know what was going on between other actors and the director. Those things are always private. But generally, the actors were, the camaraderie was great. Yeah, and it never got uh, too crazy, or certainly never got tense, that I could see.
3: In all the sets you've been on, um, what do you do if the camaraderie's not there, or you're not enjoying yourself? I mean, I guess that's sort of where acting comes in.
4: Well, I I remember four words that were said uh, by Paul Newman. When he was asked that question, what do you do if the set's tense? What do you do if your leading lady is someone you don't really like, but you have to be in love with her? What do you do if the other actor isn't giving you much? He said, I play my character. And it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. You when you're young, you try to make up for things. Oh, this this speech isn't very good, so I'll throw some acting in there. Or you try to if if an actor is slow or not playing it right you try to make up for what isn't there and i stopped doing it 30 or 40 years ago i play my character
1: i'm so
3: curious about aaron sorkin as a director because we all know what a brilliant writer he is he's now directed two movies and i just think he gets better and better um what was your experience with him as a director
4: he respects actors uh in certain instances he really loves us and he's open to suggestions if you can make them briefly and succinctly which i did what about and i try to do it in a sentence or two and he would say okay try that i he never i don't remember him ever uh, insisting that i play anything a particular way He, he he was wonderful as a director. Uh, another lesson never to uh, never to react to anybody by reputation, but only by what's in front of you on the day you meet them. Because people said to me, you better learn every if and or but, because he's gonna want it exactly as he wrote it. And he did, but n- never in a Martinet way, never, God damn it, say my line as I wrote it. and. I think I made very few suggestions about the dialogue because it's so good. But I might have said, "Do you think if I said this or that?" And most of the time, he said, "Sure." It was inconsequential stuff.
3: I mean, honestly, that's what I've heard, and 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 I love that you said to not really pay attention to reputations or no. or things that you've heard, because I do think every experience is different, and every person is different. on each set. Um, But you've worked with so many amazing directors. I mean, you started with Mel Brooks. You've worked with Oliver Stone and Roman Polanski and Ron Howard. What do you hope for from a director when you show up to a set?
4: Well, probably what I hope for is what I just said about Aaron, that they don't in any way create a sense of tension in you and uh, any kind of uh, feeling of of, uh, insecurity or that they don't believe in you. The best directors, and some of them are harsh and some of them are impatient like Oliver was, but in the bottom of what Oliver was, was a real love for me. And that was true with Roman Polanski who was also difficult in the way he wanted things but you always felt he cared personally about you, not in a sloppy way or, a, or in any kind of uh, <clears throat> made-up Hollywood way, but you felt that he cast you because he respected you and liked what you were doing. And without that, even though I have very strong confidence in myself, you're really in a difficult position if the director is anti-you. And I've been really lucky, all the names you mentioned and more have been, uh, Adrian Lyne in a movie I did called Lolita was probably the most difficult in terms of what it was he was looking for, what he wanted the camera to catch. And sometimes he he made you do 30 or 40 takes in order to get the visual. But I never felt he was disrespecting me. And I, once I understood that he was a former cameraman and the visual was so important to him, I just did it, you know.
3: That's so interesting. And you know, Aaron Sorkin started out wanting to be an actor. So it makes sense that yeah. he, he loves actors. I mean, he said he, he couldn't do it. So he has nothing but respect for those who can.
4: <laughs> I don't want anybody else. We have enough actors who can do it. <laughs> yeah, I don't need enough- Although there are fewer competitors because uh, my generation is leaving a lot, but there are some.
3: I mean, what is the secret to your longevity? You've, you've been so successful for so many years and been able to play all these different roles. Uh, I mean, could you ever have imagined it starting out when you when you thought you would, I don't want to say just be a stage actor, but, you know, would be working primarily on stage?
4: I could never imagine myself anywhere but a stage and if there is a secret it's that in between what have been extraordinary highlights in my career i have learned how to wait Uh, a lot of actors get terrified and scared and they take crap to to keep working they take terrible tv series or third-rate movies i wish i'd said yes a bit more but um I pay too high a price for it, and I've been lucky enough to every twice a decade have something that clicked, so I keep getting asked. I would say that my ability to wait is probably what's responsible for my longevity.
3: Are there roles you really regret turning down?
4: One or two I regret. but. I don't believe in regret much, you know, I, I go, oh, it might have been interesting if I played that part, but no, honestly, no.
3: I mean, I was thinking, uh, particularly on stage, you've de- done everything from Strindberg to, you know, play King Lear. Um, what has been your most challenging role? Is there anything you're, in particular, you're, you're really wanting to play?
4: Well, I played Lear uh, at the end of my 70s. And I, it, the last performance, I remember getting into the car and driving up here where I live in the country and thinking I will never uh, get back to normal. And I think I, I slept for at least about two weeks and had to work very hard to play that role at that age in rainstorms and huge, gigantic monologues was very difficult for me. And I don't find acting difficult. I found the stress, the physical stress of him, I would say that was the most difficult.
3: I mean, I can't even imagine. And um, as a fan of live theater, uh, I also like that anything can happen. I mentioned um, before we started that when I saw you in Frost Nixon, there was a fly that wouldn't leave you alone. It kept buzzing about your head until you, as Richard Nixon, told it to go away. (laughs) I love that you sort of, you know, have to incorporate those things. Is there anything, you know, that has really happened on stage that has just been crazy or difficult to recover from?
4: Yes, once, I, I played Cyrano de Bergerac three times, and once in the middle of a speech about the war, I felt that the lights behind me were hotter than usual. And when I turned around, the set was on fire. So it was in Williamstown, Massachusetts. And I said to the audience, I have a feeling we should get out of here. And we all went out to the lawn and waited for the firemen to put out the fire. And then we went back and finished the play. Once in Dracula, a giant ball of flame hit the floor because the asbestos up in the flies had caught on fire in the big love scene at the end of the second act, and we brought in the asbestos curtain, and they every, you know, chandeliers fall, and uh, props get lost, or, yeah, I like that. I I always am amazed when something goes wrong on stage if I'm in the audience, and the actress pretend it hasn't happened. I always think it's happened. You know, pick it up, work it in, say something about it in in character and move on.
3: Um, I want to mention, uh, it's been, I think, in 2013, you published your memoir, Drop Names, Famous Men and Women, as I know, Knew Them. Um, it's, I, I read it when it first came out, so forgive me, it's been a while, but I remember it was, it was a wonderful memoir. Uh, I'm sort of curious what your experience was as a writer, and um, why you decided that, that now was the time to sort of release a memoir?
4: Well, I began writing a biography, an autobiography, and uh, I, you know, I was sitting writing. Okay, this is how I began my first show. Uh, I met, so I did, and uh, this is what I was thinking or feeling. And I won, but I didn't win. And I was having a fight with my leading lady, and and I got so bored with me. I couldn't stand it really. That, but whenever a fascinating person came into my life, like Dolores Del Rio, who no one's ever heard of, a great. Mexican Beauty, or George C. Scott, or Anne Bancroft, or uh, Marilyn Monroe, people like that. I couldn't stop writing about my impression. And one day I thought, I think I'll do a book about all the great people I've known over my career who are no longer with us. And that's when I came up with the title, Dropped Names, because it means I'm dropping the name, but they've also dropped dead. So mm-hmm. I was able to write, um, and I have a second book, which oddly enough, I was working on this morning. There are 35 people in that one because more and more people are leaving. You know.
3: Wow! So you're working on that right now?
4: I'm working on book two, yes.
3: Oh, fantastic. Um, and can you tell us some, anything else you're working on? I know uh, we talked about uh, theaters being closed for a while, so there'll probably no. be a while before anyone gets on stage.
4: I'm in, the, I'm in the waiting stage we talked about earlier, and I don't feel in, in any way concerned about it because I do have my writing. And I enjoy, you know, I wrote a very long piece about Elaine Stritch two days ago and Barbara Cook and Henry Kissinger. He's not gone yet. Um, people like that, Greta Garbo, that I met when I was a kid actor no that that uh, it's very rewarding when you can put onto paper the essence the essence as you know it it doesn't mean that it's them it means this is your impression of them and i feel very um justified in writing an impression some people didn't like it when i was less than kind but that was my impression and i wanted i wanted to be honest chris Plummer read the book and said oh my god i'm so glad i have escaped your poison pen my book was how much we all love each other and he said i wish i'd written the truth you know and i said well (laughs) you haven't escaped my poison pen because you're still alive you know stubborn as he (laughs)
1: did
3: Um, Before we go, we always close out the podcast with what we call the Awards Circuit Five. It's just kind of a speed round um, of questions. Uh, And I want to start by asking, what's your prized possession? My health. Mm. Um, And what was your first job?
4: 1963, the Bowery Lane Theater, a play called The Amoralist, about a Frenchman who falls in love with an Arab boy very controversial at the time. It ran for over two years.
3: Um, and what's the movie or TV show or album that you couldn't live without?
4: Joan Baez, uh, an album called Diamonds and Rust. I associated with a particular love affair and uh, also with Joan Baez, who I, I've just begun to play again. She's just extraordinary.
3: And what's your favorite place in the world?
4: My favorite place in the world is a little village in the south of France called Ville France, where I lived for four months, making a terrible, terrible movie called Grace of Monaco. But I fell so deeply in love with the Côte d'Azur and this little town and this little hotel that I rewrote my will that my kids will travel there with me in a little bottle of ashes and sprinkle them on the water in Villefranche.
3: And uh, take as much time as you want with this one. If you could change any one thing about Hollywood, what would it be?
4: Oh, two words, the traffic.
3: it's so true <laughs> I couldn't agree more um, well again I want to remind everyone you can uh, pick up Frank Langella's book anytime you want and you can also see him um, right now on Netflix and in select theaters and trial of the Chicago 7 thank you so so much for joining us
4: thanks Janelle it was a great pleasure to talk to you and I'm in great admiration of how well prepared you were
3: In their new Netflix film, His House, Shope Dirasu and Wumi Musaku play Sudanese refugees who try to start a new life in England, but there's a hitch. They've been put in a literally haunted house. The pair discuss the twisty new thriller and how the horror genre is a perfect conduit for conveying social messages. This movie is genuinely terrifying. I'm, I'm curious, were you fans of the horror genre before you made this movie?
6: Not me. Um, I don't like being scared one iota but I realized from get out I don't mind if it has a social commentary or something that means something because before that I always well I I never watched them but I thought it was just like things to make you scared for no reason Mm -hmm. and I don't like that but now I think I would say I'm a horror fan as long as there's a there's something meaningful in it you know
3: Well, you're also on Lovecraft Country, um, obviously, and and killing it, by the way, um, literally and figuratively. Um, So I I have to imagine by now you like the genre a
1: little bit.
6: Oh, no, I definitely would say, like, it's a perfect genre for exploring the horrors of humanity. Um, And that I'm down for. Anything that has heart, I'm down for. I think as soon as it's just, like, boo, and, like, I'm going to kill, 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 I don't like that <laughs> <laughs> i uh my relationship with horror films has been
7: a bit different like i I've been searching for something that's going to truly scare me, you know, and I think maybe having watched loads of films or knowing how you tell stories, you can see through them or you can expect the jump scares and stuff like that. Um, but there have only been two films that I've seen that really did scare me, and they were both because of the context in which I saw them. Like once I saw a film that was rated higher than my age. So I was always going to be scared by that. And then like, because my family are quite religious, anything that deals with like devils and the occult, seriously, not in like a gimmicky way. Like true like occultic thrillers or things that I guess a little bit like uh, for me, so um but
3: yeah, I don't mind watching them. I just haven't found many that I really enjoyed. So when you read this script um, by the great Remy Weeks, uh, who also directed, what were sort of your initial
6: reactions? I mean, I loved it. I read it and I got to about two thirds of the way in and we kind of, I we got the twist. And I, I didn't keep continue reading. I was like, what the and then went straight back to the beginning and I was like I don't know these I thought I knew these people and it turns out I don't and I need to just re-read this knowing what I now know (laughs) and so um I just loved it my heart was pounding all the way through and I really wasn't sure if the beast was real like I kept on saying to Remy but is is it is it real because Mm. is it or is it just they're haunted by everything that they've been through and he's like no we're doing a horror so the beast is real and and here he is Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I I really loved it because there was a world in which the beast wasn't was never materialized mm-hmm. and that just I just I, I just fell for it
7: absolutely yeah. for, I I totally agree with Wumi the for me, reading the script, I could see that there were layers to it. And yes, there was the monster as it's presented, because it is a horror film. But for me, the story without the monster was equally as mm-hmm. valid and equally heartbreaking and equally terrifying. Yeah. And I think because of that double layer, um, that 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 I just wanted to be a part of this project definitely because of that.
3: I mean, it's such a great story because, you know, uh, if I didn't mention this earlier, it's about a pair of Sudanese refugees who um, sort of get trapped in the British public housing system. And there's mm-hmm. a real life house of horrors and then the horrors of the real world. And I mean, you, me- you mentioned earlier that horror seems to be a really good conduit for social message movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, why-, why do you think that is? Why do we enjoy mixing our scares with, uh, with real life scares?
6: I think I think horror okay the way your heart pounds with the suspense with the when you see something terrifying or you feel what the, an iota of what that character is feeling your heart's pounding like your, your temperature raises and like you get clammy and I don't know I just feel like it's a really um it, it's those feelings are all very real to people um, who are, it's dialed down, the feeling is dialed down because you're watching it from the safety of your home or the safety of a cinema. But that feeling is just a percentage of what people truly feel when, um, when they're faced with white supremacists or white supremacy or um, racism or um, inequality, injustice, war, um, the risk of getting on a boat like um, putting yourself and your family on a boat that's packed with people that tiny little feeling of like your heart pounding that you get that comfort like you get in that comfort of your home I now you now see it you now feel it and while you're watching someone else going living a very real life knowing that these experiences and these things are truly happening to people like now now I feel what you feel a little bit and Mm. so I think it I think it really works because it is about the horrors of humanity and what we do to each other and how we make other people feel yeah I think that's why it works so well I think
3: Chape, do you have any theories? I
7: think also there's this like, yeah, I think there's this distance that you can put when you're watching horror or when you're watching fantasy that's just like, it's a little bit further removed from a presentation of real life that a lot of dramas are. Oh my God, there's this monster. There aren't like physical embodiments of horror in the real world. So this isn't necessarily real. And through that lens, I can perceive the things that you wanna talk to me about without being preached at. I feel like I'm being entertained Mm -hmm. whilst being educated because there are things flying through the air or these fairies have wings and they're like, it's a bit childish, but it's also accessing you in a way that you're not defensive against. Um, And hopefully no matter how how much people try to defend themselves against our horror film, hopefully will penetrate both on an uh, um, entertaining level and a thrilling level, but hopefully on a message level as well.
3: Um, you guys have such great chemistry in this movie. You you really believe that you're a married couple. Um, I'm curious, did you know each other beforehand or did that chemistry come about instantly? Uh, the only thing I could think of is is you're both in Black Mirror, different episodes, but maybe there's like a, a, a meeting <laughs> that you guys have where you, where you all meet up together. <laughs> No. <laughs> yeah, no, we
6: answer. didn't we, we didn't know each other. Um we had been in the same room, I'm sure, like mm-hmm. many times we have lots of mutual friends, but we didn't know each other until our audition, like, hey, yeah,
7: what about
6: you? <laughs> I
7: knew I knew of Wumi for sure, like everybody knew who Wumi was, especially in our circles, in London acting circles and specifically our Black London acting circles, everybody knew who she was. And I had a great, a massive respect for her. And given the opportunity to work with her, even just the chemistry read that we did, I was like, this is such a blessing to be able to work with a woman. Um, so to be able to make this film with her as well, like, I'm, 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 I'm super, super, <laughs> super proud of what
3: we've achieved.
6: I had seen a lot of Chopin's work as well, just so you know, I was fangirling too.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chopin, I wanted to mention that um, you're in one of, uh, uh, I think everyone's favorite episodes of Black Mirror. You're at the end of Nosedive. You have a, you have a mm. scream off with Bryce Dallas Howard. Um, and there's a lot of people who speculate on your relationship. I mean, Bryce herself has said like, it's a happy ending because she falls in love. So she thinks you're soulmates.
7: I will take that. You know, I was just happy to be in the room with her. So if she thinks it was Soulmates, like, I, I'm going to call her after this and, and remind her that we are.
3: <laughs> I mean, I know Black Mirror has never done a sequel, but I'm just saying, I would I would love to see this couple a few years down the road.
7: I want to see those two, what happens and how they, like, tear down this institution of ratings and save the world. I think uh, I have to get Joe on the blower as well. <laughs>
3: Do it. So I want to see it too. Right? <laughs> so working in this genre, I'm curious, are you yourselves believers in the supernatural?
7: I'm still working out my understanding of existence, you know? And I know I have a lot of friends who speak about energies and whether or not energies maintain after their physical representations are still there. Can you when you walk into a room that's full of memories, do those memories carry weight? Are they like perceptible? Is there a ghost of those memories? Or of a person, you know? And it might not necessarily be that there's this physical specter or anti-physical specter that moves between walls and matter, but the effect of the like emotion that someone leaves behind you can be equally as haunting or reassuring. So whilst I'm not sure Casper's real, I definitely know that people have effects on those who they leave behind and maybe places that they leave behind. I think the supernatural world as I understand it is can be is spiritual as well because it's something more than the physical world that we see in front of us. And growing up in my family and there's a, lot of, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of speculation and belief in Nigeria, especially that um, this is not the only world and there is a communication that people can have. So whether or not they were like fairy tales in the background growing up, it's just that it's just, there's an understanding of it that I feel like I have. Whether or not I'm afraid of it or truly believe in it, I haven't decided yet.
6: I believe in God. <laughs> that's not, to me, that's not supernatural. Do you mean like beyond this natural world that we see and perceive and feel? Because yes, I do believe in, I believe more than, there's more than this. I believe in, you know, calling on your ancestors. I believe in, in the divinity of everything, everything. And I believe that energy, you know, we know that energy is never gone, only ever transferred. So I do believe that there could be you know that I don't know that there's there's more there's more and n- nothing is ever gone. But I don't even in so, the teeth or anything like that. <laughs> but, but, but where did your teeth
7: more. go, with me Where did they go? You put them under the pillow and they disappeared. Explain <laughs> it to me.
6: <laughs> right? Have you asked your mum? <laughs> I, I you could never get me. <laughs> you could never get me to believe in Santa Claus. Santa Claus never made any sense to me as a kid. Nuh-uh, never ever ever. I believed more that you could see Jesus rise from the grave than than a man coming down on Easter morning. I really believed if you got up early enough on Easter morning, you might see Jesus rise from rise from the grave. You're probably working on a on a
3: shorter schedule than most movies. Uh, lots of locations worldwide. Um, and very challenging subject material. I, I'm curious for each of you, what was the most challenging part of playing these roles? I think,
7: um, off the top of my head, because the cast was so small, like the majority of the film is just myself and women, and I know Matt Smith drops in and out. Um, but I really felt that, I, I physically felt us shoulder the weight of the whole project. With Remy, of course, and the crew who are there every day, anyway. So I don't know what I'm complaining about. Just actor who turns up with it for like ten hours a day, whereas they're like there for pre and after. Um, but I just felt because we were working basically every day. I think I only had two or three days off from the whole schedule. I, I felt physically exhausted and drained afterwards, and I really needed the whole, I really needed the holiday that came. So physically, I just felt that we'd really gone through the ringer.
6: I think for me, it was more the kind of um, Painting the picture of the past because that's everything that we have to go. Um, you know who these people are. Every, who we all are is everything that we've experienced to get us to this point. Um, you know mapping out their history together as a couple, their history together in South Sudan, pre-war, post-war, their journey. It's just it takes it requires a lot of imagination. Um. You know, you hear, you, we had testimonies of people from people, but trying to kind of get that into your body is, it's, it's a lot. Um, it's a lot, but, um, yeah, I think that was probably the toughest thing because you feel responsible, you feel responsible because now you're representing people who, like Chopin always says, people who are generally talked about, not talked, you don't normally talk to as a society. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, you feel this responsibility to kind of make sure that even though this is a horror, a sci-fi, you know, it's not like, you know, it is supernatural that you are being, you're honoring those people, that, those voices that you're trying to, you know, give voice to.
3: His House premieres October 30th on Netflix. And that's it for this edition of Variety Award Circuit Podcast. Mackenzie Johnson edited this episode and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head over to Variety.com and click on the Awards tab to find the latest Oscar predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Clayton Davis, Jazz Tanke, and Michael Schneider, I'm Janelle Riley, and we'll see you next time.
0: I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2.